so I think we are wrapping up the Exodus stories tonight. Um, for those of you that are new, that have not been to class yet, we've been going through the Exodus uh, experience for the children of Israel uh, for the last over nine months or so, something like that. And uh, I hope to bring that to a close tonight in a talk titled The Legacy or A Legacy of Life. We'll get to more on that here in a bit. So, current lifespan in the United States, current life expectancy in the United States. Anyone want to take a guess? What do you think? 85 years? No. 74. 74. 74. Still off. 60. It's up just a tick from where it was. 79. Point one one years, so about 79 years and a month and a half, something like that. Ladies, two chairs for you. Three, actually. 79.11 years. So today I was on, uh, uh, what is it, findagrave.com, something like that, if you're there with the site, and uh, I was looking at um, the cemetery from where I grew up, I mean, Beaver Town Church in Lancaster. I have a uh, set of grandparents there, and an uncle there, and a set of great grandparents. I'm not sure if you can further back to that. Um, so my great, my uh, my grandpa was born in 1920. That's 103 years ago, and he's been dead now for 15 years. So 79 year lifespan, life expectancy. The U.S. That means there's some that are significantly less, others that are significantly more. But that's the average. Hundred years from now, where will you be? You'll be underground. Spend much time thinking about that. So I, I know a guy that um, they had a daughter that died fairly young, <coughs> and so they uh, they just went ahead and bought their burial plots by her. And when I heard him tell this story, he was probably, oh, I don't know, mid-50s, I would guess. And he said that every now and then, he just goes to the graveyard, and he goes to his little spot there, and he lays down uh, at his spot, and, and he just thinks about that, you know what, this is where he's going to end up, and uh, in all likelihood, he's going to spend far more time there below ground than he did above. And as a way of putting life in perspective, I can see faith doing that. So, 79 years, some of you are about where I'm at, I'm 33, so I'm getting close to the halfway point. And my wife is significantly closer to the halfway point. And um, others of you are, are just starting out your adult life. But um, I don't know if it ever occurs to you that someday this is all going to end for you. It's going to end. And I want to read for you from Deuteronomy. Put it up on the screen here. We've got talking to Moses. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die there, and die on the mountain which you go up, 
and be gathered to your people. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the children of Israel. So it would be nice to hear from God like Moses does, but I'm not sure that this is something that you'd want to hear. You like that? God's going to talk to you. And what he has to say is, go take a hyped-up old rag and have a look around, and after that, um, the time's up. I want to look at four legacies this evening. Four sets of men. Well, the first, there's one set of men. I want to look at, uh, from number 16 specifically, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and a man named On, which we don't hear much about. But uh, I'm going to look at the legacies of Korah and of Dathan and Abiram, of Korah, separately, because the, the, uh, the, three, the three were not together in the way that you think of in the story. And then Absalom, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and then Moses. How do you live with the knowledge that you're going to die? So we're going to look at these stories tonight. They may not seem connected, but uh, I want to show you that they, in fact, are connected. Numbers chapter 16. I'm reading mostly from the English Standard Version tonight. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You have gone too far, for, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So we hear about Korah, Nathan, and Abiram, and this is why. It's because they have this thing going on at the same time. But uh, I want to show you that they're not as connected. Their stories aren't exactly the same. So Korah, if you read here, is from the tribe of Levi. What other prominent men in the nation of Israel at this time was the tribe of Levi? Any guesses? Levi. He's not allowed to sit down. <laughs> Anybody want to give a shot? Who else in the camp of Israel is from the tribe of Levi? I can't, I can lip read, but you can say it. What do you say, Alistair? Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron. Okay, how many of you have cousins? First cousins. Korah was a first cousin to Moses and Aaron. So, they possibly even grew up together. So you have Korah on one hand. Just to separate this out a bit, because I don't think I put this in my notes. No, I didn't. So you have uh, Korah over here. We'll talk about him for a second. And then over here you have uh, Dathan, Abiram, and a man named An, who actually is not mentioned any after that any time. But so these guys are from the tribe of Reuben. Might be a little bit sandwich. And this guy is from the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi at Mount Sinai stood with Moses at the worship of the golden calf. And when Moses called and said, who is on the Lord's side? The tribe of, Le the tribe of Levi steps front and Moses tells them to go and kill the people who are worshiping the golden calf. Do you remember the story? Korah was one of those men. 
The 11 tribes were sinning. One tribe stood with God. Korah would have been one of those men. What's more than that, he was the son of Kohath, which means that his tent would have been right. So when the tabernacle was pitched, you had the tabernacle, then you had the Levites camped around the tent, and then you had the rest of the camp of Israel on the outside of that. Korah would have been one of the ones whose tent was closest to the tabernacle. Along with that, Korah was probably a high-ranking Levite who worked at the tabernacle on a regular basis. So this is not some stranger that just, you know, springs up out of nowhere and all of a sudden has a problem with Moses. This would be like the deacon at your church. Something like, we could say, for illustration, something like that. Korah was not uh, someone who you would expect to have problems with. Dathan, Abiram, and On. So Dathan, Abiram are brothers. Abiram was a cousin. I don't know exactly how close to the lady they were. And they were from the tribe of Reuben. And it says that the, that the four of them uh, kind of stood up and took an, took an issue with how Moses is running things. So there's really two reasons for this rebellion that you have to flesh out. So the first is Korah's problem, and the second reason belongs more to Dathan and Abiram. So this is what they have to say. You have gone too far, for all, the, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So that's, that's the first thing. They're telling Moses and Aaron. So this is, by the way, from what I can gather from the text. Sorry, we're full. You have to take out. So this is what I can gather from the text. You have Korah with the 250 chiefs of Israel. So that's kind of one group. And they come to those and talk to them. And then you have David and Byron who remain at their tents. Because that's where they are when uh, Moses is going to address them later. So you have Korah stirring up 250 leaders in the camp of Israel. They come to Moses and Aaron. And they problem with the problem that they have with Moses and Aaron is that they're taking on too much responsibility. I want you to look at what they say. They say, you're taking too much on yourselves, and that this is the reasoning that they have. God is with all of us. All of us are priests. And in some ways, all of us are qualified to do the job that you're doing. Does that make sense? Especially for a guy like Korah. Now, Dathan and Byron, you could say that they were more on the outside. But Korah was a man within the tabernacle. This is a guy that knew what he was doing. He's obviously very influential. He pulls 250 men over on his side. And later on, when they come to when they come before the tabernacle to Moses, it says that he had stirred up the entire camp against them. So Korah was a Korah was a big dude. He was a guy with some righteous indignation, we could say. Nathan and Abiram are a little different. We read of them in Numbers 16, 12 to 4. Let's see if I have that up here. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. We're going to backtrack in the story a little bit later here, but Moses calls uh, David and Abiram and says, you know, can you come? Let's talk about this. And their response is basically, they stand there like this. You know, like, we're out here in the desert. Life sucks. I don't, I haven't noticed a, uh, an inheritance or a field or a vineyard anywhere close by here. We had it pretty nice back in Egypt. 
Moses, you just brought us out here because you want to be in charge. Now you see Moses responding differently in the text to David and Abiram than you do to Korah. We're not going to focus too much on that right now. Nathan and Abiram's problem was pure rebellion. There was nothing spiritual about it. They didn't have what they wanted, and they were upset. That's what was going on. It's purely an accusation against Moses kind of leading them out of lovely Egypt and into the desert, just so they, just so that he could be in charge. So you, we could say, and I think rightly so, that Korah is not the same person as Nathan and Abiram. But you notice they, what brought them together? And I find it interesting, so many times, I'm amazed at how low people will stoop just because they're both upset about the same thing. And if you ever notice that um, if you want to get buddy-buddy up with someone, you kind of sidle up alongside them, and you start complaining about the things that you know they're upset about, and you feel this wonderful little kinship. Interesting, isn't it? And I was, as I was thinking about Korah, I, I had to think of Psalm 1. And I preached about this a long time ago at our church at home. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. And if you look at the progression there, going from walking to standing to sitting with the scornful. You know what the scornful do? They sit. They actually don't do anything but complain. And I find it interesting that David points out that this is, this is the posture that they're in. They're sitting there in their nice little circle. They've got all these ideas, and they're upset about the same thing, and they're not doing anybody over the group. They're scorners. Korah finds himself sitting with the scornful. So here's the second part of the problem. Do these men have legitimate complaints? What do you think? It's not really a, a right or wrong answer. Number one, they're in the desert, right? So what Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, or so what Dathan and Abiram are saying, in some ways, is partially true. Moses said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt into a place flowing with milk and honey. And they're not of their inheritance, are they? First thing, desert's not a nice place to live. What about what Korah has to say? Was Moses perfect? Look at what he accuses Moses of. He accuses Moses and Aaron of taking on too much responsibility. Now, if you're looking for a prophet in the Old Testament, or in the New, for, for that matter, there's almost no other man, I, I would say this, in the Old Testament, there is no prophet that is greater than <coughs> Moses, no one that had a connection with God like Moses had. He talked with God face to face, and God points that out. He says, when I'm going to speak to a prophet, I'm going to reveal myself in a vision or a dream or something like that. He says, but with my servant Moses, it's different. I'm going to talk with him face to face. So this man is as connected to God as you can possibly be. Back in Exodus 18, while they were on their way to Mount Sinai, going to the wilderness, Moses' father-in-law Jethro comes to visit. You remember this story? Jethro comes to visit. And he watches as Moses sits all day long, and all the people come to him with their problems. And Jethro goes to Moses, he says, look, you're not going to manage this, dude. You've got, to, you've got to learn how to delegate. And as a result of Jethro's prompting, 
Moses delegates other leaders in the congregation who can do some of the work that he was doing. Moses has a history of taking on too much responsibility. And now Korah is coming to Moses and saying, Moses, you're taking on too much responsibility. So part of what he is saying is true. So here's the question. What should we do when things aren't going well in leadership? And if you tell me everything's perfect at your church, either you don't have your eyes open or you're not telling me the truth. Because one of the things I noticed when I was teaching at Bible school was that one of the fun things about teaching at Bible school, actually, is that you get to talk to a group of people that hasn't bought in yet. So when you when you're a believer in a system, you generally minimize the bad and maximize the good, right? You see kind of what you want to see. Well, if you haven't bought into a system yet, your eyesight tends to be kind of unbiased and you can see the problems. What do you do with that? What do you do when the people in charge aren't doing what they should? What do you do when there's a legitimate problem? Now we're going to turn to 2 Samuel 15. I do not have this up on the screen because this was too long of a passage. I'm going to read for you from, first, from 2 Samuel 15. This story of Absalom. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Notice how Absalom takes over. Explore the story a little bit. He treats the people like equals. So Absalom goes. He's the king's son. He's heir apparent to the throne of David. And he sits in the gate of Jerusalem, or wherever David happened to be living. And when people would come to bring their complaints before the king, they didn't have to go to the palace. Absalom would meet them in the gate and says, uh, Hey, buddy, where are you from? And uh, the man would say, Well, I'm from such and such a place. And Absalom would say, You've got to come all the way to Jerusalem just for this? Isn't it a shame that we don't have somebody appointed in your area to hear your problems? That we don't have to come here. And then the man would see that this is Absalom and he would come to bow and Absalom would not let him bow. He would treat him like an equal, like a friend. And then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the king of the men of Israel. He treated the people like weak equals. He affirms their needs, maybe creates a little frustration with the system, and sets, him up as, sets himself up as a solution without directly naming his father as being part of the problem. Now look at David and Moses. 
David's significantly more flawed than Moses is. How many of y'all were church musicians on Sunday morning? Steve's devotional? He, he used this hilarious analogy. He said, imagine some lady bringing home David for a date and says, hey mom, this is David, this is my new boyfriend. Uh, he committed adultery with a woman and had her wife and had her husband murdered, but he loves the Lord. That's true. That's what David did. We're not talking about Moses here. We're talking about a guy, a leader, with legitimate problems. If you notice the beginning of 2 Samuel 15, where we're reading here, it says, after this. After what? You know what happened prior to this? The chapter before this, Absalom has run away to Geshur, which is where his father-in-law was from, or his, uh, sorry, which is where his mother's father was from, to get away from King David. Why was he trying to get away from King David? Well, he killed one of David's sons. Why did he kill one of David's sons? Because David's son, Amnon, raped Absalom's sister. Why was Absalom taking matters into his own hands? Because it says, it says that David, when David found out what Amnon had done, he was very angry, and he did nothing. Why did David do nothing? Because in the chapter before that, David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. You have all these stories coming out in succession. You have David and Bathsheba, then you have Amnon and Tamar, then you have Absalom taking revenge on Amnon by killing him, then you have Absalom fleeing, and then after three years, two or three years, Absalom and David are finally reconciled again, but they really don't have a relationship, and this is the result of what happens. David was not a perfect king. He had some serious flaws in the way that he raised his sons. So what is Absalom supposed to do with his frustrations? Because your leaders aren't perfect. There are always legitimate grievances. I'm fully aware of the fact that my children are going to grow up and someday be able to look someone in the face and tell them, these are the areas that my, that my parents failed in our home. I know that's going to happen. I'm not happy about it, but I know it's going to happen. Why? Because I am not perfect. And I make mistakes. What are we supposed to do when there's problems? One of the benefits about scripture is that it gives us a big picture. David and Abiram, Korah, and Absalom all solved problems with their leadership. And they all had something to do about that. And I want to go back through their stories again and look at what happened as a result. Starting with Absalom, 2 Samuel 18. And Absalom, this is, this is when the battle was happening between David's men and the men of Absalom. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Skipping a few verses down, talking about Joab, and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's arbor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. 
Apparently the three javelins in the heart weren't enough. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. Now they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, which is called Absalom's monument to this day. So that's what you're seeing down here on the right. Now this has traditionally been known as Absalom's pillar for quite a long time. We don't know exactly if this is what he built. But I have this picture up here anyway to prove a point. What was Absalom's legacy? You want to know? 20,000 dead Israelites. That's how many died in the battle. That did not need to happen. Why did it happen? Because Absalom decided to do something about the poor leadership in his nation. All he got for his efforts was a stone in the ground to commemorate his legacy. So much for good intentions and pious talk covered up the secret heart. What about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Numbers tells us that the entire camp of Israel was stirred up against Moses and Aaron. What would you do? What would you do if you were Moses and everyone would work up against you? Well, first off, we read that Moses does not defend himself. <clears throat> Remember, I talked about this some time ago. What is keeping Moses? What keeps you? What holds you together? And in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now that was at Mount Sinai right after the sin with the golden calf. God told Moses that my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And for the rest of Moses' life, with one exception, you see what happens when a man leads from the place of rest. What happened in Numbers 16? This is picking up the story right after Korah and his 250 men come against Moses and Aaron. This is Moses' response. When Moses heard it, he fell on his <coughs> face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Notice Moses doesn't defend himself. He says, okay, let's go to the tabernacle tomorrow. We'll offer up incense and we'll let God choose. Who chooses the leader? From a biblical perspective, who is in charge of putting people in, of putting people in authority over you? God. You act like that? Sorry, it's not a fair question. Daniel 2. He changes times and seasons, speaking of God. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Job 2. This is Job talking to his wife after everything has gone to ruin. And she tells him, Job, why don't you just give up? 
And Job's response is, shall we receive good at the hand of God? Shall we not receive evil? How well do we do with things that aren't ours to control? That's not a flippant question, by the way. If you're keeping up with the news about the school shooting in Nashville on Monday, three nine-year-old children did not come home from school because they were killed. That's out of our control. Job experienced something similar to that, and his response was, do we only get to accept good from God, or do we also take it from life is hard? I remember reading letters from Ken Miller while he was in prison, and uh, reading some of the transcript of what he said in court uh, up to and before the time, up to, before the time he was sentenced, and uh, at his sentencing as well. And he was a man that was willing to pay the price for doing what was right. And his attitude was that he would be good and not evil. If this is what it takes, then that's what I'm going to accept. We don't always get life our way. Moses allowed God to choose, and this is the test that he put before for uh, the 250 princes of Israel. He says, we'll all worship the burn, burn incense together, and God will accept what pleases him. You know what happened? Korah, Dathan, Abiram, their children, and the 250 princes of Israel died. And following that, there was another rebellion. Immediately following that, the congregation was not happy with Moses and Aaron because, you know, they brought about the earthquake that killed all these men, and another 14,000 of them were killed in the plague. Pretty much the same thing as what happened during the time of Absalom, wasn't it? Yeah. Quite a legacy. What about David and Moses? I'll read for you what happened with David. So Absalom has proclaimed himself king, and uh, David hears about this in Jerusalem, and he gathers his things together, and they flee the city of Jerusalem. And uh, this is what happens next. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the, peop until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. And if you read David's response as he was fleeing uh, Jerusalem when Absalom's rebellion happened, it was clear that David's response was, maybe this is God's way of getting rid of me. He had every reason to stand and fight, and he chose to accept what came his way. He wasn't perfect. He was broken. What about Moses? Going back to Deuteronomy, and that verse I read for you, the verse I read for you at the beginning about God telling Moses to go to Mount Nebo and die. Moses has led, Moses has led the children of Israel for 40 years in the desert. He wants more than anything to be able to cross over the Jordan River and take them on into the land of Canaan. God says no. What legacy is he going to leave behind? 
last words. Famous last words. I find them interesting. Here's a few of them for you. Elizabeth I, Queen of England, her final words were all my traditions for a moment of time. Pachodia supposedly said, don't let it in like this. Tell them I said something. For James W. Rogers in front of a firing squad, asked if he had the last request. He said, Yes, bring me a bulletproof vest. William Sarian, everybody has got to die, but I've always believed that exception would be made in my case. What now? And then he died. Surgeon Joseph Green was checking his pulse in the hospital and said, Stop. And that was the last thing he said. Because his pulse had stopped. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's kind of poignant, isn't it? Um, there's another guy. I think it was a commander uh, headquarters, a union officer, um, was shouting at his men during the battle in the Civil War. True story. Uh, was shouting at his men to uh, stand up, you cowards. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And a soldier kind of ducking down runs back and says he prefers to duck while being shot at. He says, all right, you can go back. And about that time, a bullet took him out. And that was it. Because apparently they didn't have to be able to hit an elephant back to that distance. Last words. They tell you something about somebody, don't they? Tells you something about Elizabeth I. She ended her life with all my possessions for a moment of time. What about Moses? What legacy did Moses leave from his place of rest? And specifically looking at that in contrast to what happened with Korodate and Abiram. They left pain and death. What about Moses? Deuteronomy 33, and we're not going to take the time to turn to that. But the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last gift to the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 33, he takes the time to bless the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob also blessed the 12 tribes of Israel in uh, Genesis 40, I want to say Genesis 47, 48, 49, something like that. Except Jacob doesn't bless all the tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, <coughs> Levi were all cursed by Jacob because of various uh, sins that they had committed in their lifetime. And uh, as a result of that curse, um, you can see some of that being played out later on in their stories throughout the uh, history of Israel. But Deuteronomy 33, Moses blessed the children of Israel, all of them, including the people who complained and got Moses so upset that he struck the rock and ended up not going to the land of Israel after the land of Canaan after all. Those people too. He blessed the tribes of Rubai, Levi, Reuben, <laughs> Levi, Simeon, all tribes that Jacob had cursed at one point. Moses turns that around into a blessing. What did Moses do? What was the legacy that he left from a place of rest? He gave life. Moses was the greatest prophet that Israel would see for the time of Jesus. Not because he had it all together, because he was broken. 
and because he was broken, God's life was able to flow out of him into the people that he served. In a hundred years from now, there won't be that many people around who remember you. Once the last person who remembers you dies, living memory of your life will be gone. Uh, unless you journal or write some really inspiring books or um, I don't know what you would have to do. Most likely, somebody's going to come across your gravestone some time and say, huh, oh, I wonder who that was. They died at 33. Or they died in 93. By that time, it wasn't really going to be so, you ever think about it that the life you're living today is writing the life to which you're going to read? What kind of legacy is that going to be? Are you going to fight and destroy and try to get what you think you deserve? Or are you going to live in brokenness and rest? One other thing, in closing, I know it's actually possible to have a class of last day in the hour or so, is that Moses has some writings for us outside of the uh, first five books of the Bible, and most notably in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 90, this is what Moses has to say. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And a few sentences later, he goes on to say, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the things I really love about Psalm 90 is that Moses places, him, places himself in time and space in relationship to God. He's like, I'm here for a little bit. Louis Vuitton talks about how the days of our years are three score and ten, you know, 70 years, and, and if, if we're strong, maybe 80. And he concludes that with, he can give more, so let's say it's pretty short, but it's But he places himself in relationship to God, in perspective to God, that I'm here for a little bit. But God, you are eternal. You are everlasting. And in Psalm 91, the next psalm down, which was also likely written by Moses, he starts out with the words, the eternal God is your refuge underneath the everlasting arms. Moses wasn't just saying that because he felt good one day. He was writing that because that's actually what he experienced. Not because life is easy. Not because he had it all together. Not because it was perfect. Not because nobody ever complained or was frustrated. But because he accepted what came as being what God had to that day. Have a Romania uh, B2 meeting that Joey's not going to get off until 8:30, so we try to do it about 8:30ish in my office. Thank you for your assistance. I think this actually concludes the Exodus series. I'm not quite the stage.